Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. He's out the faders and he's got headphones on and he's balancing it all. Managed to just, you know, lose himself in the mix, didn't he? Very soft-spoken. This is The Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth. And around the table we have, fresh back from California, Jude Rogers. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. And uh, in a bit of a hurry from uh, from Stanford Hill and a little bit late because the buses were not cooperating, uh, Eamon Ford. Hello, I'm in a bad mood, but I'll cheer up in a minute. You, you'll be fine in a minute. Got beard, Eamon, sort of. I just haven't shaved. All oh, right, okay. And uh, over there in the blue corner, Fraser Lurie. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> so, I've got lots to discuss. The first thing I've got on my list here is actually Jude's Lost Weekend. In California, you've just been back, come back from a long holiday. Yes, I have. I was away in, in the United States of America for three weeks. High spots? High spots. Um, staying at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Right. Um, with a balcony just below the sign. That was pretty good. Um, any any rock legends there? No. David Johansson not still living no, there or anybody like lots that? Lots of old ladies with purple rinses. Yes, yes, yes. Um, there is that filthy Leonard Cohen line about the Chelsea Hotel, which went. I'm not going to make. No. Something about an unmade band. Yeah, something about yeah, Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin. Yeah. As the limos waited in the street. Yeah. It's great. No song, limos outside there. It's yeah. a bit of a hole these days, but yeah. I liked it. Um, amazing train journey from Portland to San Francisco on the Amtrak, which had um, a cheese and wine tasting afternoon on the train. Did it have. This is what I. In my fantasy, the train between Seattle and Portland has an observation car. Yes. Oh, yes! <laughs> Does it have kind of. Hitchcock, and does he have murders there going on? <laughs> <laughs> you know. There is not only an observation car for all passengers. Listen to that British Rail, because it was amazing. What is and it? Just glass? Just glass. Brilliant. And there's also... At the back of the train, so you can go there and In watch. the middle of the train, so oh, everybody right. can go to, there's two carriages. And also, um, if you're um, in the sleeper um, section of the train, you have an incredible 1950s-style carriage, which is 
looks like something out of Agatha Christie. Um, oh, it's absolutely great. incredible. And a cheese and wine afternoon, a cupboard full of board games. Myself and uh, my friend Sarah played Scrabble going through the Cascade Mountains. So you're pretending you were in a hotel, but it was just basically. having to move. And a cinema downstairs, oh, what? which is basically a room with a massive telly. But, um, they had a lovely Now Showing sign, which is very Art Deco, with Now Showing Chicago at 8 o'clock this evening. Brilliant. It was amazing. So how long did this journey take? That um, left Portland, Oregon at 2.30 in the afternoon, got into Emeryville um, near San Francisco at half eight in the morning and didn't want to get off the train, basically. Oh, I bet. Um, but the best thing that happened was that I went to, well, I went to Vegas as well and I got a helicopter to the Grand Canyon. You met, but you met Lam Osman in, I met in, Lam Vegas, Osman in Vegas. In Vegas. This is what they're like, sort of intercontinental hellcats. <laughs> it's kind of meet you in a cocktail bar in Las Vegas. It was beautiful. Well, I, I think I've got to raise a point here about how much uh, weird contributors get paid because I, I can't afford <laughs> to go quite. to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, yes. I've saved a long time. There, there, there's some kind of sexist thing going on here. <laughs> yes, right? where, where the female contributors oh, get paid a lot more. I know. More. Pay gap's awful. I know. So you met Mossman in Vegas. I met Mossman in Las Vegas. Um, I'm eating cardboard now, by the way, and beans for the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes. But um, met her in Vegas in a, a hotel that was um, called Excalibur, which is basically King Arthur's castle, but drawn by a small child. Um, <laughs> and we drank beer and cocktails and had um, lots of fun. And I went to the Grand Canyon on a helicopter, which is well good. But the best thing, probably the most relevant thing to this podcast, is I went to Los Angeles, where Jackie DeShannon <sighs> and I had, um, what well, Dave's called it, a lost weekend. It was kind of a, <laughs> a very much a lost day. I built this. I up. must point point out now, Jackie DeShannon does not drink anymore. For some, well, nobody in LA over a certain no. age drinks anymore. Do they all stopped? However, she made sure that I um, drank and my four friends drank um, quite a lot. So Jackie because DeShannon is should be carried around in a sedan chair for the rest of her natural mm. for having written the greatest pop song ever written, oh, which is when you walk in the room. Which is great, yes. And it's a fantastic YouTube video of her doing that. She winks at the camera at the beginning. It was about 1963. She was also, she was having an affair with George Harrison at the time. So oh, she had she? Oh, oh, ample reason to that. wink. Oh, the famous that. pictures of Jackie DeShannon and George Harrison playing chess in a hotel room. <gasps> oh, which is the kind of epitome <laughs> of, uh, of uh, Beatlemania, you know. Oh, no. So she also went out with Elvis. Well, she didn't. Oh, <laughs> she <laughs> went she, with Elvis. She Come dated on. Elvis, and I put. You know, quote marks from dated um, um, for certain reasons. Um, but I asked her about it. She said, oh, I can't tell you, you know, in a kind of slightly cheeky way. And she dated Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page wrote, apparently wrote oh, yes, Tangerine, you know, off Led Zeppelin 3 about Jackie DeShannon when he was in the Yardbirds, but kind of updated it when he was in Led Zeppelin. She is one of the greatest women I've ever met in my life. She is 64, going on about 18. She hasn't had any noticeable sign of work as well, which is quite impressive. She has. It's very good. Um, she's tiny um, and beautiful, and she's also the most, one of the most feisty, hilarious people I've ever met. I interviewed her basically about a year ago, and again recently, um, and she said, oh, what are, you doing, what, what are you doing after the interview today? I said, oh, well, I've got to go because I'm going to America for three weeks tomorrow. Are you coming to L.A.? Yes, I am. Here's my number. Let's meet up. So oh. I'm, so I'm not going to Actual number, not call my PR. No, actual, actual phone number, number. Actual number. So I text her when I get to L.A. She says... Beverly Hills Hotel, 5 o'clock tomorrow, bring your friends. And I said, oh, I might have a few friends. Bring them all. Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm there with uh, four friends. We wait there. She walks in. She basically kind of puts her arms stretching because she goes, right, let's party. She's <laughs> 64. Yeah. <laughs> Golden girl. And she's not, you know, a 
a lady who obviously hasn't got any friends and therefore has to hang out with, you know, people in their early 30s. She is just somebody who really likes meeting new people. She's really into modern music still. She's going on about, you know, how many CDs she buys. She's always looking on MySpace. And she's talking about when she um, went to a very early gig of um, The Killers and how much she loves Kings of Leon, doesn't understand how they're not big in America. Um, And she also told us um, about um, a a good story about Bob, Bob Dylan, um, she, she saw one of his very early gigs and absolutely loved, um, you know, his you know original songs. She didn't care much for his covers. She I didn't care for them much, but I liked his original songs. Went to her record company, tried to make an album, say I want to make an album covers of this man, and they were like, "Who's this guy? He'll never do anything." You, you're How insane. right she was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, and she's this is a woman who moved to LA at the age of fifteen. Yes. To, to write, encouraged by Eddie Cochran. You can't imagine it. Um, she came from somewhere in the middle of nowhere, didn't she? She's kind of from somewhere in Kentucky. Right. Um, That's the somewhere in Kentucky, but um, really interesting. Back when her mum was a big band singer, her dad was a country singer, her grandmother was English, so she had folk songs at home. And she basically, you know, she had a couple of big hits, the f- best one, the most famous one being her when version of um, What the World Needs Now. The, oh, the of course. Song. But she also wrote Betty Davis Eyes, didn't she? Also she also co-wrote Betty Davis Eyes. Um, the original version of that is on YouTube and it's very different. It's like a very rollicking and it's like a real country stomper. So you had fun? We had amazing time. She bought us a bottle of Dom Perignon. Oh, um, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. <laughs> chocolate jelly. Were we in the polo lounge? We were, in, we were in the polo lounge first and did, then we went to the new you, bar, the 1912 bar. Because men have got to wear a jacket and a tie in the polo lounge. And there were some women wearing cowboy hats, though, who were obviously in the henna. Cowboy hats. Bit of a letter. You get away with cowboy hats. <laughs> but um, Paris Hilton's mother was there as well, which um, I, I didn't recognise, but my, two of my friends were very excited by this. And uh, we were there for about five hours. She wouldn't let us go. She bought us food, she bought us drinks. She, she wouldn't let us you go. You got lathered. Yes, That's very good. <laughs> it's interesting, that point, Eamon. We were only talking about this in the office the other day, that do you, when you re- interview rock stars and they say, oh, we must go for a drink sometime or mm. whatever, do you take them seriously? Because Mark Allen was didn't. saying he never takes them seriously. Last time we talked to Robert Plant, Robert Plant said, we ought to go for a drink sometime. And Mark thought, this is just never going to happen. Have you ever pursued any of those things, Amy? Well, I've, I've never really interviewed uh, musicians. I've interviewed a few in my time, not that many. I tend to interview the head of digital at uh, EMI or <laughs> Universal. And they He's go, very keen for Yeah, and they go, would you like to go for a drink? Please come for a drink with me. <laughs> and uh, generally I do. Uh, so I, I tend to interview uh, industry people. But... Uh, I interviewed uh, Tony Visconti a couple of years ago, who was wonderful. So we went for dinner, and uh, he'd given up the booze, but he was regaling me with many tales of uh, the people he'd worked with, uh, like Sparks and uh, Bowie, obviously, and uh, Thin Lizzy. And he told me about Live and Dangerous, uh, always hailed as kind of the great uh, live album. He said, pretty much the only bit of that that's live is the crowd noise. Because they <laughs> live and dangerous, they just effectively did it in the studio. Well, they did it. They got the tapes back, and Phil Lena always felt that uh, he couldn't play bass and sing very well at the same time. So he thought, oh, I want to redo my vocals. So they thought, okay, I'll strip the vocals off. And then he went, can I redo my bass as well? So all the rest of the band heard about that, and they, can we redo our parts? They pretty much redid the entire album. So this classic live <laughs> album is not remotely live at all. They, they did overdubs in somewhere in Shepherd's Bush, I think, some tiny studio. They were in there for about four days. So did you um, wear the love trousers? Uh, do their music, maybe. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> well, they, this, I think we should, we should solicit people's feedback, actually, on the least live albums. 
ever, ever put out. Yeah. There's, there's a good start, actually. Because the Rolling Stones um, live EP, Got Live If You Want It, I think that's what it's, what it's called, yeah, it came about in 1965. I swear it's not remotely live at all. You know, it, it's a bunch of guys playing in the studio. And then somebody has taken some incredibly loud... You know, girls screaming noise mm. and just completely put the two mm. together. I think it's the same with uh, Cheap Tricks' Live at Budokan album. Really? It's, it's, it's a studio album with screaming on. So not even <laughs> anywhere near the Budokan at all? No, probably not. This is a good, it's a good category. This is the least live records ever put out. We want to know about that. <laughs> now, the one, one thing we wanted to talk about particularly to get Eamon along uh, to talk about this morning and Fraser is... Well, it's Bob Dylan week, isn't it? It's, it's always Bob Dylan it's, week it's, in my life. <laughs> is it really? Is it? Every, I would never have. I've never have had you for a Bob Dylan fan. Oh my either. lord! He's Are the you really? Bob Dylan Very fan. much so. Are you devoted. Uh, pretty much. I, I, I'm not so devoted where I like uh, Empire Burlesque and Dylan and the Dad. I'm, I'm very much prepared to. Oh, there's uh, a there's a, there's a <laughs> range between Empire Burlesque and Dylan and the Dad, surely. Not anyway. really. Well, it's they're they're, they're kind of uh, different ends of a, uh, a sticky, smelly right. instrument. Basically, I got Eamon to make me a Bob Dylan bestie because I've started to get into Bob Dylan oh my at God. the grand old age, age of thirty, <laughs> um, and it was 124 tracks. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best of. That's that 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 was as low that's as I could get. That's just scraping the surface. Absolutely, that, that's the that's the cream. Oh, so <laughs> you're clearly devoted. Okay, well, so so let's get this. Uh, let's line this up. Uh, Eamon, you went to the O2 on Saturday. Yeah. And Fraser, the following night, you went to you went to the roundhouse. I went to the roundhouse. Had, had, had you seen Bob before? Because you've got to be prepared for his unique reinterpretations <laughs> of his greatest hits. <laughs> I, I was I'd never seen him before, but I was kind of expecting what I got, which was. Uh, Go on, tell they, us what you got. Go I on. wouldn't say they were unique because uh, they were just terrible. So you really hated them. He he can't sing. He has a really really average band. I think the people who say. These interpretations are unique and avant-garde and fantastic and experimental and he's doing something different all the time. He's not. That's all he's <laughs> capable of. He's doing his awful, awful well, there's substandard there's pop rock versions of classic there's songs. There's well, there is the argument that he kind of addled himself so badly in the 60s that he doesn't know which way the floor is. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so how do you I, 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 like, I went with a friend, actually. Who and you've been, presumably, a number of times I before. think this was probably about the tenth time right. I've seen him. So you uh, know what to expect. Absolutely, and I went with a friend who'd never seen it before, and she oh. was actually whipping and cheering the whole way through it. She absolutely loved it. And she wasn't doing it because she just happened to be in the same geographical space as the <laughs> legend, you see, because I, I think this is an element of the, people's the, the, excitement nowadays. The, there is an element of that, but she wasn't a kind of a massive Dylan fan. She kind of appreciated Dylan, uh, but I think she kind of got like four albums, that kind of thing, so not massively into him, and I managed to get an extra ticket, so I invited her along because she'd never seen him, and she really genuinely loved it. And were you, were you g situated in a place where you had decent sound and you could hear and so forth? <laughs> wow. No, here's a story. It's the only time I've ever done it. I was actually in the Oto Hospitality Suite. <gasps> oh, oh, my Lord. It's the only time I've ever blagged it. My friend works at O2 and knows I'm a big Dylan fan, so he uh, kind of pulled all the stops out. So you go in and you have, like, there's a little kind of barry kind of seating area where you get food and free booze and you have wait for service, and it's so amazing. your friend was drunk, basically. That's no, she <laughs> I was absolutely lathered because it was free. It's, the, it's my favourite. It's my favourite genre of beer. <laughs> no, so, so it seems to me with Bob Dylan, and I kind of retired from going to see Bob Dylan a few years ago, when I he played at Wembley, and my son, who was sixteen at the time, said, "I want to go and see Bob Dylan," and I said, "All right, but he won't be very good." Mm. 
And he said, no, nonetheless, I want to see Bob Dylan. And so we went, and, and we left near the end. And as we were going out in the car park, he said... He wasn't very good, you know, what I mean? <laughs> and which I, I thought was was a good realistic point of view. Now, the, there's there's the three attitudes you can take to Bob Dylan. One is he's terrible. That seems the, to be pretty the, much everybody's got no, that attitude no. these days. Well, the, and here we're talking about live. One is he's terrible. Two is well, he's incredibly unpredictable, but that's kind of the fun, yeah. right? And then the third is this is. A radical reinterpretation of a catalogue. This is an artist working at a level you, that nobody has ever done before. You can't possibly imagine it. Now, which of those three <laughs> do you go for, Eamon? I like to think that Bob is uh, is re-sculpting and retooling his art, but I know <laughs> that he's, what, 66? Um, he stopped playing guitar. He's basically got an Argos keyboard, which yes. seems to have cost about three quid. And he sits on Wurlitzer satin. And it's, be, it's, it's basically a Zimmer frame or a Zimmer man frame. Uh-huh. And he's basically uh-huh. propping himself up. And then he shuffles on in the middle of the stage and takes out the old gob iron, gives it a, a few kind of blasts, uh, obviously in the wrong key, and then kind of shuffles back. And it's almost like... I don't know. It's it's almost like he's in the kind of retirement ho- home, and um, he's a bit confused, <laughs> and he gets up, but he can still kind of do it. Is he making an effort though? Do you get the sense he's making an effort? Because when I went to see Leonard Cohen last year, he's really making an effort. Oh, boy, is he making! An you know, effort. I saw him twice last year, and he does repeat some of the same. Okay, just it completely the same. But. There's real investment in it. But he's, well, there, there, he's in the moment, as yeah. they say. He's well, completely well, all there. Well, <laughs> there, there's always the argument about the, did Dylan ever mean it? Because there's the Lester Bangs quote about Dylan was always a fake, but he's not even good at it anymore. So he said that in the early oh. 70s. Right. Well, it is, If you take yeah, someone no. like um, Brian Wilson, who's a similarly adult, I imagine. <laughs> and uh, he's here's a man who at least has had the sense <laughs> to. Uh, Surround himself with with people who know what he should sound like. Yeah, and so you get a reasonably accurate portrayal of, of what he used to be like. Dylan, yeah, the lunatic, still in charge of the asylum. Absolutely. Yeah, but I, I think that's kind of part of his grizzled charm because nobody grizzled charm I can buy. Grizzled charm. There's don't th- have any difficulty with grizzled charm. I understand why you might go because there's nobody like him. Yeah, I understand no, absolutely. That. But I don't buy. Radical reinterpretation. Or that it's it, even any good. Well, <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> so I think what he's done is he's brought his performance down to the level of his incapability. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. there is that. that. That's what he's done. You know, he's but he, be, he, he has been playing a lot of those songs for 40, 45 years. So why is he doing it? Because he just wants the money. And we're, <laughs> ah, and we're, and we're, we're fool enough to, to hand it over. But I... Like paying my taxes, and if it goes to support the NHS, I don't mind giving a bit of money to, <laughs> to keep Bob Dylan in cowboy hats. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I was... The, now, this, this led to it. You know, Mark uh, posted uh, his report on going to the O2. And he loves him as much as you uh, do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I, don't know, I, I don't know why Bobby before Mr. Allen with his knowledge <laughs> And then Fraser posted a thing uh, about going to see him uh, at the Roundhouse. The result was yesterday. The word server fell over for yeah. about three occasions. The, the, the kind of the level of, of interest and, and response to it. Now, my my the thing I threw in on this was, I think he tours one to get out of the house, you know, because yeah. I think I I've got a theory. I think he's an unhappy man. 
And well, I think he has to be out there well, fun, 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 doing fun, something. Does he have a fun, girlfriend? The well, is, <laughs> does he have a nice girlfriend? I'm not girlfriend? offering myself. No. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point. I was thinking this this morning. Do you ever see Bob Dylan in a kind of leisure capacity? Do you ever in see a truck Bob sit with, you ever, with a bit of fried egg down the front? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever see Bob Dylan on his holidays? You know, most stars, you have a sense of a professional life. Yeah. And a family life, but a home life, a personal life. I think you don't have that sense. At the very least, you'll catch him out jogging occasionally, but mm. you never see that with Dylan. Do you? you don't. I, I think Dylan is a little bit like Morrissey in that they've kind of become the myth that they kind of built around themselves, so they're constantly on. Yeah. Morrissey always has mm. to be Morrissey-esque yeah. all the time. He's, he's got to be there with his kind of his pithy put-downs. Dylan's got to be a bit kind of weird and make and kind of making these weird pronouncements and stuff like that because they built this mythology around themselves yeah. and it's become all they are inventions they, they're, they're self-inventions yeah, yeah. they are but anyway so, so perpetuate. I, I think he's unhappy when he's not on stage <laughs> yeah and I don't think he's wildly happy when he's on stage mm -hmm. but the second element is I said and he does it for the money and of course got the usual kind of people go he doesn't need the money now Will somebody back me up here? Well, you know, there, 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 there is the Dylan's life is obviously a bit secret, and there's lots of uh, suggestions. Uh, the lawyers are listening that uh, <laughs> there are several uh, offspring of Dylan running around America that are perhaps not necessarily on the uh, in the official biographies. There was a case a few years ago where it turned out that he married his backing singer. He married his backing singer and gone to live in the in the San Fernando Valley, and nobody, nobody realised that. But also, the big thing with Dylan, apparently, is that he is has invested in numerous Herbrian property ventures that have basically pushed him to bankruptcy. So, he, he builds giant kind of houses, like, like Xanadu or something right. like that, uh, basically overreaches himself. And um, basically has to go on the road that, to that pay. Then pay the, the property market the sticks, yeah. and you can't get rid of a castle. On yeah. the, you know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's not easy to do. Well, you see, but also yeah, whether whether he's done this or not, you see, what do you think, Jude? That's my theory. I think I think we, you know, as fans or whatever, with anybody, with any kind of successful rock star, we expect them to behave in a way that we would never behave ourselves. Now, if somebody came to you and said, "Tell what, Jude, six months work." You can double your worth, your wealth, mm, and I know nice. you've got huge amounts of money, too. Yes, lots. <laughs> you'd do it, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I guess so. Depends on what it was, I suppose. No, it, it'll work. Oh, oh, I'm a moral person, don't know. Oh, right. <laughs> but, 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 you know, people, people work for money. And yeah, of course. That applies whether they're earning 5000 a year yeah. or $5 million. Yeah. They just do, don't they? they don't Dylan has a job. Stop. It's being Bob Dylan. That's yeah. what he does for em employment. And, and absolutely. Self-employed. P-A-Y-E. And also, <laughs> he will have no end of dependents. Yes. Just work it yeah. out. Yeah. How many I children, grandchildren, Dylan, people work Dylan's for him? one of those people that his publishing alone must bring in a tidy bit of money, because I guess after the Beatles, he must be one of the most covered artists. Oh, definitely. Is he right? still... Well, well, I don't like know. Even, even, we even think he is. Well, know. a lot of those songs that, like the the Hendrix cover versions, the Bird cover versions, they'll still be being played on the yeah. radio. So he'll still be making money off that. But he's yeah. probably not paying for Xanadu, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he won't be making a bean out of selling records. Not the, not the new stuff. No, but although he does record quite cheaply, it's kind of hit and run. He'll be in the <laughs> studio for four or five days tops. He never spent right. time in the studio, so he's not like Coldplay. Kind of tinkering over a snare yeah, song yeah, for yeah. nine weeks in the road. <laughs> He's in some scabby studio in New York, straight in, 
three takes. But bye. people, bye. nonetheless, these people still work for money. Yeah. Just yeah. like anybody Although else. I'm sure there's an element money. of, you know, they don't know what else to do. Yes. You know, I remember that um, somebody wrote an article in the Word magazine, some years ago, I think it was you, David Hepworth, about the Rolling Stones. Similarly, they just don't know, they wouldn't be able what to else do anything do? else. You know. well, there's also and most people don't have this privilege. You yeah. Know, if you're... If you're Bobby Charlton, you can't go out and earn no, a fortune exactly. when you're 60 years old. If you're Mick Jagger, you can. Yeah. There's, also, you there's also the simple fact of you walk out onto a stage in front of 22,000 yeah, people who love and they're you. screaming for you, yeah. for you to go home and then be sitting around frying an egg or yeah. whatever, <laughs> or trimming the hedge. I mean, it's, all a, it's all a bit dull. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that level of adulation, you really definitely, need it. It's, it's complete, uh, completely ego-driven by pretty much all of those artists. They really don't need the money. Obviously, there are uh, they kind of live to their means, so they're by it. They they need that ninth house in Brazil or whatever. Uh, but most of all, they love the fact that they've got twenty thousand people bellowing out their love for them. So I don't I don't think it's fair for us to to ever say, oh, you've got enough money, you've got enough fame, you've got enough adulation. Stay indoors now but, and retire. It's probably uh, well, it's a probably more accelerated version of this in that you write something in the word. And then somebody comes up on the Word website and they go, I read that piece Steve wrote, it's great. And you get that little kind of skip in your heart. <laughs> oh, like that. Imagine oh that. I never do. Imagine that times 20,000 times every night of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You could get addicted to Approbation. that. Approbation, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So, <laughs> so we're talking about we're talking about Bob Dylan no longer making sufficient money from record royalties, and that pretty much oh. would apply to just about anybody yeah, nowadays. Pretty much. Um, there's a good link coming here. I can sorry. Tell. There's a good link coming here. There's a link coming yeah. here. Yeah. Um, the houses to this one. <laughs> I was intrigued this week by the fact that what, what's the biggest worldwide success in the music business of the last three weeks? Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle. How much money has anybody made from Susan Boyle? Zero. Nothing. Zero. <laughs> Okay, so um, I was intrigued by this piece on the Guardian Media uh, website yesterday that they reckon that because ITV were slightly, rather slow off the mark here in in getting whatever revenue they could, that they've they've turned their back on a million pound windfall that they might have had by. Uh, forgive me, monetizing yeah. mm. uh, this woman's appearances on YouTube this because is this she's had so many. Clicked hits on YouTube that apparently when Gordon Brown met Kofi Annan the other day, <laughs> did you see this? No. Kofi Annan, the first thing he said, well, shaking hands on the red carpet was, "What about that Susan Boyle then?" Oh my really? lord! I mean, what this is has gone. <laughs> this is like Beatlemania in terms of the speed. <laughs> that, you know, it's like Beatlemania all contained in three weeks. What we called mania. Yeah. So <laughs> go on. E explain how anybody would make money out of this. Well, th I think this is the great big myth of kind of. Uh, Digital media and money. There's not the, the the reality is there's not a huge amount of money in that. You speak to any record company, uh, and they've got licensed deals in place with YouTube and all the rest of it, and uh, ask them what their last royalty checks were like. Minuscule, minuscule. Really? The head of an unnamed major label <laughs> told me about a year and a half ago. He said you would be you would actually cry when you see the checks coming in from YouTube. And it's all tracked, and it's all uh, properly so, kind so of So there's various stages to this, aren't there? And you, you probably know about this, about this Fraser. That, that first of all, when YouTube and the web came along, 
record companies and everybody said, oh, it's a fantastic way of publicising what we do. We, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. shovel everything on there for free, and then people will see the Coldplay video or whatever, and they'll go and buy the record. Yeah. Um, but then they realise it's not as simple as that. And, al- and also they get paid every time they play paid on the radio, so they're, they're going to see it as an equivalent. Yeah. And they, want, they want to get paid per play on the So, so how might you get paid mm. on the internet for having people play your, use well, I, your I, I video kind of, on their site? I kind of think they are getting paid, because what they're receiving... Although they're not getting any money, is they're getting a hell of a lot more than a million and a half pounds worth of free marketing out of this. A hundred million people have seen well, this. Well, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the old that. MTV argument from the 80s, where basically the music industry were desperate for promotion, hand it over the keys to MTV. MTV built a giant business yes. around uh, playing their videos and not paying the folks. They said it's promotional. And now the music industry, because it's on the bones of its hours, sorry to swear, it has to monetize. <laughs> yeah. It has to monetize absolutely everything. And it's looking to these outlets as the great white hope. But the reality is there's not a huge amount of money out there. There's all this talk about a million pounds and whatever. It's all finger in the air stuff. But I think the big thing, there's lots of kind of licensing disputes going on. Warner pulled their uh, content from YouTube. PRS, on behalf of uh, the songwriters in the UK, pulled their stuff. JAMA, which is the equivalent in Germany, pulled their stuff because they're not getting... The, the right rates and stuff like that. There just simply isn't the money there. And the other issue, which was explained quite nicely to me by a lawyer, is that we've effectively got two YouTubes. There's official YouTube, mm. uh, which is all accounted for and tabulated against and advertisements run against that. Then there's this Wild West of the user-generated yeah. content yeah. side. Yeah. So you can have that Susan Boyle thing, uh, video being viewed high many million times, you can only uh, put ads against it through the official channel, yeah. which ITV was a bit late to get that. But there's also people who are ripping that from their Sky Plus or whatever and putting up. So there's going to be about, I don't know, 300 different iterations of that video on and there. Also and they can't all be monetized. And the other thing for YouTube is, on the user-generated uh, content side of things, it has to deny what's on there because if it can catalogue every single video that's on there, it's liable for contributory copyright infringement right. unless it's licensed. So it's in YouTube's interest not to police that little bit. They'll take down stuff uh, when they're told to, but they kind of go, oh, it's all up there and we don't really know what's on there yeah. because they'll have to pay it's if, they, if they can track though. everything. It's quite difficult, though, because if, you know, I, the first clip I saw of Season Ball was one of these, you know, user generator when you said, you know, somebody taped it off the telly and shoved it onto YouTube. But um, if you want to pass it on to friends and um, the official versions, you never have the embedding code, obviously, because that's kind of you know, you can pass the, these things mm-hmm. on easily. So I will always, you know, if there's something I want to see and pass on to someone, I'll put it on my blog with an Im- the embedding code or something like that. That's what people do because they want to pass these things on yeah. because they're interesting. So it's a really weird catch-22 situation. It's, it's a very interesting time, it strikes me, because it's got to the point where the argument, oh, it's good publicity, no longer holds good. You mm. know, because effectively you're just giving things away for free. And, you know, everybody's, um, everybody's argument with the record business is, you know, I was at a conference the other day, you know, there's newspaper groups and radio companies talking about podcasting in the future and so forth, and they're saying, we're not going to get caught doing what the record companies did. You know, everybody thinks, oh, the record companies were singularly stupid in not kind of grasping the potentials of, of digital distribution. Well, they were the first on the mineshaft, really. Well, and also, and, you know, the, 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 we just recently had some figures reported that music sales are down, whatever they were down, 8%. 8%. And the, and the, and the BBC <coughs> saying... And puzzlingly, not made up for by digital sales. 
they never <laughs> will be made up for mm. by digital sales. Mm. You know, because you're selling something for twelve quid, a physical product, mm. yeah. versus selling something for you know ninety nine p, and people can just pick one. I track. think people don't really care as much about ownership anymore, about kind of owning something that that, that is theirs. You know, Spotify. You know, you can just get everything. Oh, so yeah, Spotify you want just, to. They've, they've got a million users now in the UK. They just it's, it's fantastic because you know it's just there, and you can go dip in there and you like. You don't have to have. Okay, so the there's product. the model, Spotify, and everybody looks at it and goes, Spotify is a wonderful thing, but how's um, it going to make money? How's it going to make any money? Presumably, the only way it's going to make any money is sell it to somebody yeah. else who works out how to make money. <laughs> That's why YouTube was, and not YouTube, uh, YouTube was sold to Google. Uh, MySpace was <coughs> sold to Rupert Murdoch. Friends of United was sold to ITV. Oh, God, that, were, that was a good purchase. Well, that? Never, never, all of them, all yeah. of them have been sold to a conventional media owner yeah, saying, like yeah. you'll work out how to make money. Yeah, but Last FM was bought by CBS yeah. a couple of years ago. So yeah. And then, like they, they, million. and then they returned two years later going, didn't really. Sorry didn't about work. that. Sorry about <laughs> <Joe. laughs> you know, that. I, I, my problem with Spotify is that as soon as it's full of enough ads to pay for it, It'll be full of too many ads. Well, this this is the That's really my argument. Yeah, well, this this is the really difficult bit that they've got because they've got the goodwill of the industry behind them. Uh, they've got a service that the public clearly loves. Yeah, and they know that they need to bring in a certain amount of advertising. It's all it's what uh, people in this industry call CPM, cost per thousand, with M being the Roman numeral rather than some oh, right. spell mistake. <laughs> uh, so they, they work out how much it costs to actually serve a thousand listeners in terms of bandwidth and kind of Stafford and all the rest of it. And they have to generate more than that in advertising being mm. served to those thousand people. So at the minute, with what you're getting a track, uh, add about every four or five songs on Spotify, like not a huge amount. But we'll probably see, they'll probably do quite clever things like very, very targeted ads because they'll be looking at your history sure. and, uh, and so they'll be targeting ads. And that it becomes better then because if you're, uh, they can charge more for advertising rather than do the whole scattergun approach. Like you can reach ten million people, of which I don't know, hundred thousand might be your core yeah. demographic, uh, or <laughs> they could say we can actually deliver you the hundred thousand people that you want. Is it true that Roberta's gone? No, Roberta's no. still there. I'd heard rumours that Roberta from Spotify is <laughs> yes. here. I don't have Spotify because I have an ancient computer. Anyway. No, Roberta, Roberta's still there, okay. but I think she's probably getting a bit annoyed that she's kind of become this uh, well, internet a, celebrity. Has a big picture in this month's uh, Word magazine. Yeah. So talking, <laughs> of, uh, talking of new revenue streams in the music business, what's this story about HMV opening cinemas? Well, it's part of it's part of the ever-evolving HMV brand. Because <laughs> they obviously did the deal at the start of the year with Mama Group to uh, take over the Neiman rights for certain venues. So it's now the HMV Apollo, and Apollo yeah. and HMV. Oh, is uh, it? Forum. Yes, yeah. So they've got Neiman rights like O2. You've got Neiman rights, so the O2 and the Brixton Academy's now an O2 venue. Shepherd's Bush Empire, Mark Ellen's local is now the O2 Empire. Yep. So it's basically, it's a partnership that HMV did, which I think is actually a very clever move by HMV because uh, there's not really a future in selling CDs. The DVD market is hitting, uh, hit the wall a couple of years ago. The other bit that HMV was making a lot of money out of was gaming, but that's beginning to kind of hit saturation point. So it needs to kind of expand. So it's gone into live. Uh, timing's not great at the, as we enter a recession. <laughs> Uh, but it kind of makes sense for them to kind of, to extend what they're doing. But so that then that then muddies and dilutes what HMV is all about. Because you talk to pick anybody in the street and say, "What does HMV mean to you?" They'll invariably it's say, a dog "Music." And a horn. Yeah, 
They'll invariably <laughs> say music unless they're 16 and they'll say it's games. Yeah. Right. Nobody thinks live music, nobody thinks cinema. So they've got, they've got a long hole here. So what are they going to put a cinema above an HMV shop? And an art house. And an art, art house. house. I think the first one is in Wimbledon, I think, is where it's opening. So, the, but the idea is that, that presumably you'll turn up there to buy records and you'll think, oh, I'll go and see, you know, Hiroshima Mono More. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> a bit, it's a bit weird if they're selling the, the DVDs there. So you kind of go, you can buy this and have this forever. Yes, yes. For yeah. three quid. Or you yeah. can come through and pay six quid to sit in a big chair and watch it once. Now, what do we think, just generally, this is a huge subject, but just top of your head. Quite soon, we're all going to have in our living rooms quite big screens, aren't we? Big flat screens and nice machines to run high quality DVDs. I already do. Sorry? I already do. You already do? <laughs> yeah. When do you last go to the cinema, Rosa? Oh, I still go to the cinema. Oh, I go a lot. Yeah, right, I, saw, okay. I saw Watchmen. I saw. Uh, yep, that was the last thing I saw. I, I don't really go to the cinema. I like DVDs because I'm probably the worst person in the world to uh, uh, have films addressed at because I kind of get a bit bored and switch <laughs> it off and then come back a week later. So I, I kind of treat movies like books and kind of watch it in bits. I spent two years basically not going to the cinema and I went a lot in January because there was a pre-Oscar rush, loads of films coming out that I wanted to see, Frost Nixon, uh, Revolutionary Road, what <coughs> else came out, something really big came out, oh, Slumdog Millionaire, you know, this kind of thing. And I just really started loving going to the cinema again because it's, it's quite exciting. It's also nice to concentrate on But if you go on a Monday night at certain cinemas, it's not. No, and, uh, and Orange Wednesday and all these kind of yeah. things, which are very good deals, I'm sure. I go to the local cinemas. I go to, you know, the Mile End. Don't do what I did, <laughs> which is go to the West End with no. four people to see the Young Victoria film cost £48. Wow. No, it's I a lot of money. Yeah, I went to see all right local. <laughs> the last, last time I went, I went to see Milk because I hadn't actually seen it. I was coming to the end of the run. I went with a friend, and it was in Hampton Street, Odeon, tail end, small cinema, very small we- screens. Though. Wednesday night, probably. Yeah. Last screen of the evening. I think it was twelve quid each. It's oh my a lot lord! Of money. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I, I love this cinema because it's the only time I'm ever doing one thing at once. If yeah, that's what I love about it. it. At, at home. Because you're in the dark, you can't do anything else. Exactly, at home, I'm oh, checking email or doing the dishes. Because you're in the dark, you can't do anything else. That's very interesting. It's not a girl. They still have double seats <laughs> and people, you know, putting their arms around each other. They can't afford it at those prices, can no. they? No, I really agree with you because... I'm actually spending a lot more time off the internet because I just do too much stuff on it. Yeah. I, don't, I just I will go to my box, um, you know, my whatever it's called, Discali box, and turn it off for a couple of hours. So I'll just write or work. And I go to the cinema, so I just sit there and go, oh, a film. So, so in the loop the other night, for instance, at um, a cinema, it cost me £6. And it was great. I'm there for two hours. I laughed lots. So it's freeing yourself from distractions. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting point. Let me guess that Eamon doesn't do this. <laughs> and, and, and the basis upon which, uh, you know, I, I come to this conclusion is by about, on Twitter, about 10 to 7 this morning, <laughs> I think I've had 12 tweets oh, yeah. from <laughs> Eamon. That's because I was having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing this morning? I just, you I are just the most active. There's nothing wrong with it. You are no. the most active Twitterer I know. Well, I, I just decided, uh, for some reason, uh, MC Hammer's Stop Hammer Time came into my head. So then I decided to see how many London tube stops I could get based around hits. 
So I got, got stuck, come with me time, time yeah. and had shoulders, knees, and toes, <laughs> and things like that. So I was just going Love through. Love Grover's in the half. Yeah, was that favorite. was another one. So I did about twelve in a flurry, and then kind of got bored. And a friend of yours told you to stop. Yeah. to stop drinking coffee. Let me get. Let me guess. You don't take a long time to wake up in the morning. You're kind I'm of straight. You're, you're no, straight no, the, there. The Eamon the works on Dave Hepworth time. He gets up about three thirty. Cause you'll get a tweet <laughs> from him in the morning. That's like <laughs> five hours ago, and I've just got up. You know. <laughs> I I, I figured that this morning. I thought this man gets up earlier than I do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the most productive I am in any day. Once it gets about five o'clock, I'll die. Yeah, gone. And I never work beyond six o'clock. My cut-off point, now that I'm freelance and working from home, is The Simpsons on Channel 4. <laughs> as soon as The Simpsons starts, work's over. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> now, t- talking of further uh, wonderful wastes of time, I was introduced this week to Audio Boo. Mm-hmm. Fraser, explain Audio Boo to us. Audio Boo is like Twitter, but with audio. You need an iPhone, it has an app. Or an iTouch. I or an iTouch. And you uh, record messages, which are then posted like tweets are on the web. Right. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's very, very cleverly done. You can, people can tag their Audio Boos, so that if David, for instance, was to write, uh, record something about Word magazine and tag it with Word magazine... You can search on Word magazine and then subscribe to everyone else who... So if you tagged Eamon, you'd be able to get Eamon saying 12 times before 7 o'clock in the morning. You could. Stop Hamsen. Well, not yeah. so much that. You, it's you, terrifying. If people <laughs> decided they wanted to, to, to Twitter to audio boo about Eamon... Yes. Ah. And it was tagged with Eamon. You know, so it's not impossible that if you're a football fan, you're a fan of a particular club or a yeah. band or whatever... Yeah. Um, but it does strike me that what is, as being one of those things that could so quickly get really annoying. Oh, yes. Because at least a tweet, if you don't read it, your eyes just go straight past it, don't they? You know, you yeah. just... You, you but is it, is it just like having people hijacking your uh, answer phone? <laughs> yeah, but you... Just you've a load of mad people. Is it, <laughs> it, 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 it sounds like the kind of people who stand outside supermarkets <laughs> with different shoes on. <laughs> that you avoid those kind of people <laughs> that kind of live in shop and trolleys. Yeah, oh, possibly. Yeah. Well, that's that innovation dealt with. Yep. And uh, you know, while we're running through this, you know, kind of tomorrow's world of <laughs> options, have you followed uh, this week the the launch of the espresso book machine in the West End of London? No. So basically, if you go to Blackwell's Bookshop on the Charing Cross Road for yeah. you know for the next few months. They are testing the espresso book machine, which will print for you and bind and trim and present you with an out-of-print book. Mm. So if you go there, you know... Now, I've been told... I remember somebody telling me this a while ago. They've been out to Amazon's headquarters of Milton Keynes. And you may have passed Amazon. It's very near the M1, you know, when you you drive up there. And clustered round Amazon are loads of kind of ancillary companies, the yeah. suppliers, you know, the postal services, packaging, and all these kind of things. And among them is custom book publishers. So if you want a particular, ac- and this particular applies to academic books, if you want something that's out of print, they'll basically, if you pay them an extra ten pounds, yeah. they'll print you one. That's really good because a lot of those academic books. Uh, you're, you're talking about a print run of about 1,500, 2,000 maximum. Yeah, yeah. For a, for a big sell on academic oh, book, sure, yeah, it's yeah. about 5,000. And they won't reprint them unless there's massive demand. I Back in the dim well, distant past, I used to work in vaguely academic publishing a very long time ago. And there were really good books that you know, 100 people desperately wanted, but they just couldn't afford to print them. 
there, well, there is, is a, there is a thing, and it's uh, uh, our good friend Simon Frith, our mutual friend oh, Simon yes. Frith. Uh, he's big, he's, hello, Simon uh, Frith. Sorry. Hello, Simon <laughs> Frith. He gave me a PhD. I love him. Uh, <laughs> his big bugbear was he wrote a load of books like Sociology of Rock in the seventies, and what happens in academic publishing is if the book go, entirely sells out and goes out of print the rights revert back to the author. But his argument is that in a warehouse somewhere, they've got like four or five copies. So that um, Cambridge or Polity or Mm. Edward Arnold, whoever, retains the rights. So the the rights never revert back to the author, ever. Right. Oh, well, maybe there is a future in that. I just thought to myself, I looked at it and I thought, I can't see it, because now it's never been easier to get hold of books than it is now. Yeah, there's a lot of really good websites you can get. Well, you you know, you... you, you, The marketplace is very good. Absolutely. I, I've got so yeah. many books for a penny on Amazon Marketplace. You know, maybe you pay postage. £2 oh, postage, but yeah. if you want you that book... You don't mind. You yeah. get it. Yeah. yeah it, 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 it frees you of the frustration of going in a shop and trying to get somebody's attention. And, and also, knowing where to look yeah. in a shop increasingly. You know, mm. if it doesn't fall tidily into yeah. romantic fiction... I think it's a good idea, in theory, but in practice, who's going to go in to Blackwell's on the Charing Cross Road and say, oh, you know, I've got this list of books I want and get them to do them. You know, you just well, apparently, and look yourself Apparently it will, it will produce a copy of, uh, uh, what is it, Pri- uh, Crime and Punishment they did in a matter of minutes. Uh, pages spewed anyway. out at the rate of 100 <laughs> a minute. But yes, you can. <laughs> you can probably buy that. So while we're talking about technology in the future, just one final thing. I did this, this thing at the... Um, for the Radio Academy the other day, we were talking about podcasting and audio on demand, and people were there from The Sun and from The Guardian, and you know, which these newspaper groups are increasingly investing quite a lot in doing audio. And what a lot of them are pinning their hopes on is that quite soon you'll get all of this through your phone. That, you know, it seems to me, as long as, as, long as there's been new technology, people have been talking about everything converging. Mm. And it sort of never happened. Well, it's going two ways, isn't it? It's getting smaller and it's getting bigger because everyone has bigger screens <laughs> but smaller phones. You know. Do you believe? Because the way they were talking about it, that you'd, you'd, you know, in, in it won't take long that you'll be able to dial up the word podcast from your phone. You know, so you won't have to actually download it from the site or from iTunes or whatever. You'll be able to just, you know, you, you'll just be able to access it there. Like you'll be able to access, if you want to listen to Radio 1 on your phone, you can do you it. You can do yeah. that. Anyway. You can do it yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can do it like you can do Blast FM. That's got yeah. an app on for the iPhone. Do uh, we believe that that's going to happen? I think uh, battery life is an issue, obviously. Yes, definitely. A huge issue at the moment. Especially with um, certain products by... Um, Sorry. Uh, Don't worry, they don't advertise. (laughs) Interesting. I've started to get most of my news off Twitter, off the BBC newsfeed. Yeah, the Guardian uh, newsfeed as well. So I'm sitting on the bus and you just hit refresh, and it's one of the the sites that I follow, and you're able to read the headlines. I'm rolling news all day. It's great. So do do you go beyond that? Do you know that stories are happening and, and not understand any of the detail? Well, it's just uh, it's basically just a series of headlines, okay. and yeah. it's enough for me to busk in the pub. It's like Google Reader, really, isn't it? In the same way, yeah. busk in the pub. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> what a thought. Yeah, superficial knowledge. I've got <laughs> I've got through uh, thirty six years of my life so far. <laughs> Why change that? I just got this image of you bus- busking in the pub with a little Bob Dylan hat on now. With really, the with a big giant nose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about uh, cinemas. Did you follow the story of the the ruckus at the old age pensioners screenings? No, that sounds brilliant. brilliant story. I, I think it's the, the Odeon Group 
Yeah, it would be the Odeon group, big cinema group. They decided, understandably, to use some of their quieter afternoons to have special concessionary screenings for old-age pensioners, where they would screen largely classic movies, you know, old favourites. And to encourage people to to come, they they would give complimentary tea and biscuits. But some of the managers, this was so successful, some of the managers were finding that their major discipline problem in the cinema was no longer 15-year-old oiks. It was, it was uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, dressed entirely in pastel shades from Marks and Spencers, uh, turning up the flinging their anoraks on all the best seats in the house, you know, to reserve them. Uh, and, then, uh, and then actually taking their own Tupperware containers and filling them Full of all the complimentary biscuits. Oh, my sister, my sister used to work in a hotel in Carvery, and the story she would tell you about pensioners coming in. They used to do a, a special <laughs> Wednesday th- deal for the pensioner who seven quid or whatever, and it was handbags being <laughs> filled with, with cups of beans. My grandmother but, does that. She puts a bit of meat in a serviette and puts it in the bag. Yeah, but there, there was one bloke. There was one bloke used to show up to the Carvery every week, and he would pay his seven quid or whatever. All the other people are. Uh, uh, feeling their false teeth with, uh, <laughs> with pork and ham and chicken, whatever. He had no teeth, so he would just go up with a bowl and ask for her to keep filling it up with ice cream. And I'd go, I've got no teeth. Oh, I'll have the ice cream. And he'd just be sitting eating gallons of ice cream. Because the great, the great uh, buffet, buffet gag is Alan Partridge, isn't it? In, uh, oh, his big plate. Alan's gets, big plate. <laughs> from his briefcase, a larger plate, oh, yeah. which he uses. You know. That's a classic moment. Uh, all that to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Eamon, uh, you, you, this Aerosmith story. Yes. Tell us about this. Uh, very briefly, what had happened was they were due to play a gig in Hawaii about two years ago, and they pulled it quite kind of last minute because they, I think they got, they got offered another big gig in Chicago, and they also got offered a kind of corporate gig for car dealers or something ridiculous like that. So they pulled the gig and they said, we'll give full refund, whatever. All the fans in Hawaii got the hump. So they basically took a class action against Aerosmith. So this uh, is where a load of people with the kind of minor grievance can band together yeah. and it becomes a huge grievance. Yeah. So much so that Aerosmith had to refund them their ticket costs, had to uh, refund them any out-of-pocket costs of travel and whatever else that they uh, would have incurred. And then they also had to put on the show for free. So Aerosmith are like several million dollars <laughs> in the hole for pooling a gig to th- go and make a, a couple of hundred thousand for doing a corporate gig or whatever. Well, and I think it's fantastic it is. fantastic empowerment of the fan to go, you can't mess us around like this. Yeah. You came and you, you were sitting for months on our uh, ticket money, make an interest off it and you agreed to pay, play a gig and uh, through, uh, obviously there's various reasons for kind of family reasons or health reasons if, if shows get cancelled, that's understandable but pulling a gig in somewhere like Hawaii to go and do a big corporate gig is actually quite offensive to the fans and I'm well, really, really happy they've done this and I'm really happy they've succeeded because I think it's in like a bit of a warning to fans. So uh, has to this bands. been happened yet? Or? Uh, I think it's about to happen. Oh my god, are they going yeah, to just throw they're, things they're, at them? Or throw well, they're, 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 they're going to do it for free so I think it'll be fine. <laughs> so, uh, let <laughs> People in the audience looking looking very kind of female. Grumpy. <laughs> not, not grumpy, just kind of, that'll teach. Oh, yeah. right. Everybody in the Smug. audience. Yes, yeah, yeah, behave. Yeah, Joe, Joe Parry and Steve Tyler with, with, with rap knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> We're really it's sorry. It's, this, could, this could be a key moment, and, uh, you know, expect any day we'll see the class action 
suit on behalf of the people who think that Bob Dylan's been murdering his, uh, his material. <laughs> Consciously, you know. I'm signing up. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to see that in court. We'll finish with, uh, with a few um, queries from the, uh, the, uh, the people in the Twitter sphere. Uh, um, here we go, it's old Web 2.0. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, Sukio wants to know why don't. Uh, and actually, yeah, sorry, Sukio and Sir Terence want to know why don't what they refer to as chicks do guitar solo chicks chicks well, it's a horrible little word birds. well whatever They're female musicians yeah. girls women whatever why and it's true why don't they do because guitar they solo? don't feel the need to show off like boys it's true, they do if they're in heavy metal bands yeah well, i guess so yeah, forward, that's that the whole genre, genre is about yeah exactly that's, up, the, that's, the, that's what the genre is about yeah but, you, you know, if you're going to say Bonnie Raitt, she probably doesn't do much of a guitar solo. No. She'd consider it a bit of a, you know, a bit of an empty gesture, wouldn't she? Well, guitar solos are inherently a bit boring. <laughs> they certainly are. That's true. Just tedious, tedious things. Get real good. It's very much the kind of the, the Ramones philosophy. No guitar solos. Get over it. Yeah. Four chords. That's it. Bash it out. <laughs> Simple. So, okay, that's one. From uh, Gunner Boy wants to know, what happened to the phenomenon bands who were clearly not serious. It's always a very difficult interpretation, that, is who's serious, who's not. And he gives us examples, mud and darts. Now, I'm in a position to supply information <laughs> on the latter. Darts. Darts? Because at the, at the Brit Awards recently, I sat next to um, the chap who, I think, played bass in darts and now works for the Musicians' Union. The mighty darts, weren't they? Uh, very probably. <laughs> and apparently, uh, they're back in business... They are playing... Everyone's back in business. Sorry? Well, absolutely. They're hitting the bullseye. (laughs) Double (laughs) top. They are are still around. And and I can't believe that mud are not still around. Has anybody seen mud in the last 10, 20 years? They should just come back at Christmas, shouldn't they? I think think their name's mud, etc. Interestingly, (laughs) when I was was huffing and puffing my lungs out up uh, Pittenfield Road to get here on time, or 15 minutes late, sorry, uh, (laughs) not that it's going to make any difference to you podcast listeners, uh, (laughs) the Lexington pub, opposite the mighty words glittering ivory tower offices in a bustling uh, N1, playing there on the 30th of May are the Glitter Band. Oh really? There is a I little, little almost kind of tragic, curled up little poster in the window. Where? When? Uh, on the thirtieth of May. It's a Saturday. Clear your diaries. Want to do a live podcast? Baldy Slaphead wants to take <laughs> up <laughs> screen names. <aren't> <laughs> wants to take up Shane Pacey's suggestion from the word blog, which is this. This came after the Bob Dylan um, uh, controversy. He thinks that rock critics ought to have a 10-year lifespan and then should be forcibly retired <laughs> to stop jadedness. <laughs> what do we think about that? Well, I'm in year six, so I don't want uh, Well, can I uh, uh, reference him back to my Simon Frith name drop? I did a PhD <laughs> on the music press because I got nothing better to do and I got funded to do and they'd obviously nothing better to spend their money on. But <laughs> he was on the music press and everybody I spoke to, including Mark Allen many years ago, uh, said, so you want to get a job as a music journalist? And I said, no, I don't. No, thank you. It sounds awful. And then by accident, <laughs> I became one. Uh, by accident? Yeah, yeah. And I also, uh, well, I wrote this whole big thing about how personality journalism was dead and they never ever sold uh, uh, articles on the, on the writer anymore. 
and then I did a piece for Weird about three years ago, and my name was on the cover. <laughs> did you make a fortune out of that? I made an absolute fortune, and I never had to work ever again. <laughs> oh, actually, I did. But he only, <laughs> he only works like Bob Dylan, you know, because yeah. he feels the urge. My, my heart was all the richer. <laughs> and final question is, can a review, from Sir Terence, can a review ever be completely objective? If the writer has been given an executive box and sits with a record company executives, there's a bit of details gone. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that, I, I, I hear it all the time. That was not a record company, I would yeah, imagine. No, that, that was, that was, that was, that was okay. And you weren't writing a professional review? No, I wasn't, no. no. Because I, th- I think there's a misconception here that, that, A, that you get executive boxes. I've never, <laughs> ever got an executive box. And, and, and and I've only had it once, and that was because I was actually a mate doing a proper favour. Yeah. Because, because also, people think that, that the press get the best seats, i.e. up the front. Mm. They're never no. up the front. Because the last thing the artist ever wants to see go on stage is, it was A, a bunch of empty seats and people turning up late yeah. and talking to each other, as rock critics all do. And, and it certainly doesn't want to see anybody leave early or yeah. look, you know, as if they're having anything less than a wonderful time. But so the press the is always kept well yeah, away. But there's also, the, the subtext for that is, uh, within that statement, is that everybody in a record company kind of blindly loves the artist. Uh, it, uh, it's something I posted on the... Uh, weird website on Sunday about the Bob Dylan thing. I went to see The Verve who I never liked. I thought they were a dreadful dreadful band. <laughs> uh, but everybody said, yeah, you've yeah. got to go and see them live. So when their big comeback was announced, they, they were playing the roundhouse. Tickets were being tens and hands outside for 150 quid. I was taken by uh, somebody quite senior at EMI as their guest. And we watched, we sat through ten, two of their ten minute plotty jams, looked at each other and lagged it. <laughs> and this very senior person uh, from EMI, uh, the swear words that came out of their mouth about how awful the Verve were, and this was one of their priority <laughs> acts for that year. Oh, really? Yeah. Because they, so normally, me, a they normally say that. Normally, record companies uh, and artists are a little bit like married couples. You know what I mean? That yeah. when they when they turn up with a new partner, they want you to love them like crazy. Can I say my proudest moment of when they're my about to divorce career. them. They say, "Oh, they always were appalling." Anyway, the proudest no. moment of my career is Richard Ashcroft oh, slagged me off from um, stage the park, on the tea, a tea in the park last year. I'd written. Um, a column in a newspaper about um, how basically awful the Verve and Oasis were kind of now, you know, kind of, um, and how the 90s wasn't really this, you know, guitar-re heaven. It wasn't. I was there. I was 16. There was as much dance music around there. You know, there's this whole revisionist history of Britpop. And anyway, I just basically said, I was a bit mean about the Verve, and he slagged me off from stage that night. He said, by name? Um, no, you referred to the uh, newspaper rifle oh, and really? said, oh, they don't know anything. But um, I was very happy. Well, I, I would take that as a compliment for somebody yeah, who looks, who looks I was like delighted. a knee in a wig. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the ugliest rock star in the world. And I'm, I'm not an oil painter, but Richard Ashcroft. Yeah. God, he looks, like, he looks like an early sketch for one of the uh, side characters in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> they kind of got rubbed out of it. <laughs> you employed some visual image this week, Eamon, when you were talking about oh, was some this about, venue or something. Was this about Bo? Oh, it was about Bow, the yeah, area Bow. No, it's my line of the week, actually. Go on. It was, what was uh, it? Uh, it was. I had to get the bus via Bow because the Jubilee line was down to the Saturday, yeah. and I'd never been through Bow before, even though it's kind of pretty, not yeah. that far from where I live, and it's awful. I think <laughs> I described it as a, a blurry charcoal action of your own funeral, <laughs> <laughs> and it really is the worst place in the world. And and I, 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 I speak as somebody who grew up in Northern Ireland in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs>
in Belfast, which was basically just one shop and then just a hundred soldiers. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that was a bit disheartening and heartless and soulless. And then I went through, boom. Went, God, it was like As they we, were, we, were, we were living in kind of the people's, utopia. As they the People's Republic of Bow are going to, you know, reply and come back Dave and Dave Swarbrick used to say about Birmingham, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> yeah. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.